If you'd like to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. It's page 573 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I'd invite you to grab one of those blue ones and turn to page 573. If you don't own a copy of the scriptures for yourself, please consider that blue one you hold in your hands to be yours. And uh, I would say it's a Christmas gift, but we say this all through the year when it's not Christmas, so Merry Christmas. Um, uh, but yes, that, that Bible is now yours. Please take it home and read it and uh, um, acquaint yourself with it, Isaiah 9. Before we get into the scripture reading, just two uh, brief notes for the uh, holiday services uh, before we begin our reading. Um, for Christmas Eve service, please remember that it's usually one of our better attended services on the year, and we have a finite number of parking spaces. Now, for families, some of our families really enjoy seeing how many vehicles we can bring with us to church um, on Sundays, which is great uh, through the year, with the ex exception of the Christmas Eve service, uh, we ran out of parking. So if we could limit the number of vehicles um, that we bring that night, that would be great. Um, also, um, please be a little early um, as things kind of fill up quickly in here, and we, it's, it's helpful for those uh, who plan to be here to be here just a little early. And then the third thing is for the following morning. We don't usually have a service on Christmas Day, but Christmas Day does fall on a Sunday. And uh, on years where that happens, what we do is we have a short worship service on Sunday to celebrate the Lord, of course, on the Lord's Day. Uh, we do keep that pretty low-key, uh, very informal, uh, one hour, September 25th. And if I, I looked it up, we don't have to have Christmas again on a Sunday until 2033. Okay? All God's people said amen. Yes. And the pastors, too. It seems like we've had a few of these lately. Uh, I, the, the way the years hit, we've had more than normal. But um, so just so you know, and there's no pressure if your family's in town and you come to the Christmas Eve service and you're like, I, I, we've got a zillion more presents to open, all that stuff. Don't, no pressure at all. Um, but if you'd like to be here on Christmas morning, um, 11 o'clock, one hour, and uh, as Pastor Chris so eloquently said, um, he's, he'll be preaching and he'll keep it within that time frame. Um, or I'm walking out, okay, um, like he said. All right, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading about this Savior who was born into the world. Just so you know, this is written about 750 years before it happened. Okay, seven and a half centuries before the event. And so let's read it with that perspective in Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the champing warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. How do we know that all these wonderful promises will come true? Verse 6, 4. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom and grace to understand exactly what Isaiah is predicting here in these first few verses. And as we see the realization of those promises in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we not only marvel, but may we come to a saving knowledge of him who came into this world to intervene in our darkness, to save us from our strife, to save us from your holiness by becoming the object of your holy wrath as you poured it out upon him instead of us. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have by way of title for the sermon today, and it'll also be sort of our introduction, A Tale of Two Sons. We're, of course, riffing off of Charles Dickens' most famous novel, The Tale of Two Cities. The Tale of Two Cities was released in 1859, and Charles Dickens did a very smart thing. He released it one week at a time for 31 weeks. It was sectioned into 31 different sections. And The Tale of Two Cities came out little by little, and people had to wait to read what would come next. This worked great for those living in London, but for those who were living across the pond in New York, in New York City, New York State, for example, there was a mix-up in the transatlantic mail, and they had gotten midway through the story, and the delivery of the next chapter was late, and people were lining the wharves of the the bays, waiting for the ships to come in just so they could hear what Charles Dickens had come up with next. It was the ultimate cliffhanger. This was a book that sold 200 million copies. And it begins very famously. Many of you know the first lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. This is a story about London and Paris at the same time. Two cities going in opposite directions. In Isaiah, verses chapters 8 and 9, we're told a tale of two sons. And if I could put it in Dickens' language, it goes like this. It was the worst of times, but it will be the best of times. And the two sons typify the worst of times and what will be the best of times. Now, I've been telling you about these sons. You say, well, we've been reading in chapter 9, and I only read about one son. Well, we do have to go back one chapter to see about a first son. Let's go there with me, if you will. In chapter 8, verse 1, Isaiah is saying that he had a son. Isaiah had a son, and we see that it's his son. 
It says right here in verse 3, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. The prophetess is his wife. But before he had that son, in verses 1 and 2, he gathered the elders and some very trustworthy people of Israel, and he wanted them to witness something. This, is like, this would be like the mayor of the city calling the judge and calling the treasurer and calling the uh, city attorney and so forth and gathering them in one place. And he says, guys, I want you to testify to something. I want you to testify that I am naming this boy not yet born. I'm naming him something. And the name of this son is a very famous Bible trivia name. It's Meher Shalal Hashbaz. How'd you like to have that name as a child walking around Jerusalem, circa 750 B.C.? What's your name? Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, this was long even by ancient standards. I don't know what they called him for short, but I'm sure they came up with a nice short nickname. Well, Meher Shalal Hashbaz means something. It means the prey hastens or the spoil speeds. What is this talking about? This is talking about when, when ancient armies fought, one of the fruits of war was you could collect all the stuff from the city that you invaded. Or you could take all the enemy's spoil and gather it for yourself. And that's what it means. The prizes of war, the spoils of war are speeding up. The prey to the hunting army is moving toward it. That's what Meher Shalal Hashbaz means. Well, why would Isaiah go to great trouble to name and to have witnesses testify to the name Meher Shalal Hashbaz? Why would he do that? Well, keep reading. Down in verse 4, it says, The Lord spoke to me again. I'm sorry, let's, let's go back uh, to verse 3. He says, Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. God says that this city is going to be the spoil, Samaria, Damascus. This city, this town is going to be the prey that hastens. Well, Samaria was only 150 miles north of Jerusalem. For a little perspective, I did a Google Maps thing, and it can show you exactly 150 miles. Anybody been up to Twin Falls, Idaho? Anybody been up there? Or anybody been over to Rock Springs, Wyoming? Those are both almost exactly 150 miles from us. Not too far. What God was saying was, before this child can speak, before three years are up, your sister city, the next nearest major city to you, just 150 miles away, is going to be carried away and destroyed utterly. Now that might sound to you to be a small thing, but so you know, the city of Samaria at the time was considered essentially impregnable. Most moderns at that time thought it an unconquerable city. It sat way up on a hill on a mountaintop. There were two rivers that ran and fed it for drinking water. It was a very difficult task for any invading army to take it down because 
Everything around it was desert. How could you ever hold out longer than the people sitting outside the city or sitting inside the city? They thought it to be easily siege-proof for years and years. And yet, God says, Isaiah, I want you to name your son Meher Shalal Hashbaz, because inside of three years, this city, Damascus, 150 miles from you, is going to be utterly destroyed by the king of Assyria. It was the worst of times. Now, we living here close to Salt Lake City, imagine... Imagine viewing something like this from our perspective. Imagine a foreign army invading somewhere up around Seattle, bringing its army south. They get Portland. They come farther south and take northern Idaho. They get to Boise and take that. And then they come down and they take Twin Falls. And we're down here in Salt Lake City looking up watching this foreign army invade and take, invade and take, and what do they keep doing? They keep inching closer and closer and closer and closer. And then we receive threatening letters from this foreign army telling us, specifying for us directly, you're next. Would you be afraid of that situation? Of course you would be. And these people were utterly terrified of what was going to come flowing down upon them next. I want us to notice that in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, we see that this terror was a very real thing for the people living 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Look at Verse 8, 21 and 22. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they uh, turn their faces upward and they will look to earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God is talking about all these refugees from Damascus that will have no hope, they'll have no light. They're in gloom and darkness and distress. This was the worst of times for the people of Damascus and Syria. And God had given them fair warning to clear out, for his judgment was coming upon them. He'd given them fair warning to repent. But in their hardness of heart, they wouldn't do it. And for them, it would most certainly be the worst of times. But we have chapter 9. But there will be no gloom. Chapter 9, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who once walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. God is saying that he will deliver Jerusalem in an unexpected 
an unprecedented way. Yes, you were in gloom. The king of Assyria is coming down south. You feel threatened. You feel vulnerable. You feel endangered. But I'm going to deliver you. Now, if you want to circle this in your Bibles and go read about how God did deliver these people, um, you need to read about that in Isaiah chapter 36 through 39. And you can read how God came through on this promise. God is giving this promise here and now. I'm going to deliver you 150 miles south of Damascus. I'm going to deliver Jerusalem from the king of Assyria. I'm going to give you light. I'm going to redeem you in this unexpected way because I want to picture something even greater. I want to picture something yet to come. I want to picture a salvation that's even greater than the one you'll experience when I deliver you from the king of Assyria. And it's to that picture we're about to turn, but I want to make sure we're catching what Isaiah is throwing. He says, a foreign army is going to invade, and they're going to take everything north of you, and they're going to come down for you too, but I'm going to deliver you. I am going to deliver you. You can read about that deliverance in Isaiah 36 through 39. And I'm going to deliver you not just for the sake of deliverance, but so that you will see that I'm going to do something even bigger and even better on a worldwide level. This little deliverance, which will seem to you to be enormous, will be small by comparison and a mere example of what I'm about to do. Now, let's read of what God is about to do. He says that he's going to deliver ultimately through a distant son. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These, this is the son that's coming. This is the son that's going to deliver. This is the son that's going to provide that ultimate deliverance. And he's going to be delivered like anybody else will be delivered. A son is born. Well, a son can be anybody. You can call an old man the son of so-and-so. But what Isaiah is specifying here is this son will actually be a child at one point. He specifies, unto us a son is given. A child is born. Now, if you like to mark up your Bible, I would strongly suggest that you circle this and write Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Do you remember that story from Genesis 3? Adam and Eve had sinned greatly. They disobeyed the Lord. They wanted to be God. God confronts them. And God tells the woman, he says, that through you, a son is coming. His heel will get struck, but he will crush the head of the serpent. Through your seed, you'll be delivered. 
That's the first promise of a coming redeemer. And here we get another promise of this coming redeemer. For unto us a child is born. Now everybody listening to this should have their attention focused on who that child is. If this child is to deliver you ultimately from everything that hurts you, wouldn't you want to know who he is? Wouldn't you want to know who that deliverer, who that redeemer might be? Well, God tells us who that's going to be, and he does so through these titles of great renown. There's four of them. Look at your Bible right here. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. These are four titles, and in Hebrew, they're two words apiece. They're all, they're, they, they go like that, and, and in English, it's kind of hard to bring those over into two-word phrases sometimes, and we get a little confused also by, what is it? Is it an opera? Is it an operetto? But the, the Messiah, you guys know that we, you've heard this Messiah, wonderful, counselor, you know what I'm talking about? That's, I didn't sing it well, but you guys know what I'm talking about, right? No? Nobody knows what I'm talking about? People know? Okay. But in the song, it makes it sound like it's separated, isn't it? Like his name is wonderful, comma, counselor, comma. It's actually wonderful as the adjective and counselor as the noun. Wonderful counselor. Now, what does it mean to be a wonderful counselor, a wonderful counselor? Well, the word counselor isn't the sort of person that you would go to for advice. Hey, that can mean that, but it's not exactly that. This is more like an official term of a governing office. This, we would call this the president's cabinet member. He's an officially recognized, nationally empowered advisor to the king or to the president or to whoever's ruling. This is an official advisor, counselor. And it says that this person is a wonderful counselor. The word wonderful here is a special word. And it doesn't mean wonderful in the sense of terrific. Okay? Some of you moms are going to get presents from children. And as you open it up, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, oh, wonderful. That's not what this word means. <laughs> imagine, imagine instead of, instead of opening a present that would make you say wonderful, imagine, ladies, you open a present and your husband has, has taken a picture of a 14-carat diamond ring that will be yours in a week. What would you say when you saw that picture? You'd say, get out of here. You can't afford that. That's too good to be true. This doesn't exist. This defies imagination. I'll believe it when I see it. It would be such a marvelous promise you'd have a hard time wrapping your mind around it, wouldn't you? 
That's what the word means. In Genesis 18.14, God tells the 100-year-old Abraham and the 90-year-old Sarah that this time next year she's going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. And God says, is there anything, here's the word, too wonderful for me? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, God says, I am going to deliver your people with a strong hand, and I am going to do many wonderful things. Think of just the plague of frogs. Frogs everywhere. Frogs in tea kettles, frogs in bowls of sugar, frogs in your pillowcases, frogs in your drawers. If somebody had told you before reading that that you would have, you would, somebody had told an Egyptian prior to the plagues that they would find a frog in every nook and cranny of their homes, they would say, that's impossible. It's impossible. Here's our idea. This child who is coming is going to advise and counsel and promise wonderful things. With his mouth, he's going to deliver promises that if given by anybody else would be too good to be true. They're the kind of promises that change everything about your life if you accept them. And you find yourself saying, how can this possibly be? But Jesus is that good. And he is that powerful. And if he, is, if he really means what he says, how would this change your life? Well, it would change everything about my life. And that's the word wonderful. He's a wonderful advisor. He doesn't counsel run-of-the-mill wonderful things. He counsels things that make us marvel and say that's too good to be true, and it would be if it weren't for Jesus. The second thing about him, we're told he's the mighty God. Mighty God, this word mighty is the word for heroism. It's the word in Proverbs 30, verse 30, for a lion that's roused to fight. A lion that's been backed into a corner and roars. It's mighty roar. This is raw power and strength. Mighty heroism. Mighty God. He's a heroic God. The word here is utter, transcendent power. This child won't be any normal child. He will counsel things that are too wonderful to be true. And if you doubt for a moment that he lacks the power sufficient to carry through those promises, remember, he is the mighty God. He is our transcendent hero. He is the one who overcomes. He's the God who can actually do it. It says here in his third title that he's the everlasting father, the everlasting father. 
it's literally, if you wanted to translate this literally, it's av, uh, the, the Hebrew is av ngam, right? Two very short words, two, two letter words. The father of forever. The father of forever. I don't think, by the way, I don't think that Isaiah here is communicating in Trinitarian terms. I don't think he's trying to get us to think Father, Son, and Spirit. I think he's trying to communicate something to us about the nature of this God. And all commentators agree on that. What exactly the nature he's trying to communicate, we're not sure. It can, you have two possibilities, okay? He's the, he's the Father of forever. He's the timeless one. And being transcendent and being mighty, we might think of a roaring lion and be terrified and not want to come to him, but he's altogether different. He's fatherly. He's tenderly. He's like a shepherd who leads us along, somebody we want to go get close to. And that, I think, is a part of what Isaiah is getting at here. But I think there's something else Isaiah is getting at. The word father also means, has the sense of inventor. In Genesis, for example, we're told that Jabez was the father of all the stringed instruments. No, I'm sorry, that was Jubal. Jubal is the father of all the stringed instruments. What does it mean that he's the father of? He didn't actually have stringed instruments as children. No, he invented the stringed instruments. And he was a musician. And he started a school where people went and studied how to make that beautiful music. He's the, the author of stringed music. I think this is also in line with what Isaiah is getting at. This is the architect, the author, the inventor of forever. He's approachable, yet... He stands outside of time as the creator of time. He's the mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Prince. This is, a, again, another elected official. Sometimes it can mean Prince. Sometimes it just means the executive, the person whose job it is to bring about whatever his title conveys. The word peace here does have the sense. It's a word that's still used in Hebrew today, in modern Hebrew. It's all over the place. In fact, if you were to go to Jerusalem, you would see shalom everywhere. How many of you ever, many of you, you know a Hebrew word. You've heard it said shalom. It means hello, goodbye. It means prosperity. It means blessing. All that's good, the absence of conflict. This is idealism. It's used all over the city today in Jerusalem, but this was prosperity, certainty, blessing, health. And here is God himself taking on the official capacity, the author and progenitor of time, the, the person who promises things almost too good to be true is tasking himself with blessing and peace and harmony with God. Certainty, 
that God is for you. All of this is promised with the arrival of a child. Now this child is a child of magnificent consequence. That's our next point in chapter 9, verse 7. We're told that he has an eternal reign. This is the most repeated idea. The government shall sit on his shoulders. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is a king. This, is, this child is a king who will reign forever without end. He's coming to set up a kingdom. His kingdom is his chief concern, and he wants to rule and to reign. I want you to notice that it's an assertive reign. Not only will the zeal of the Lord do this, as we're told at the very end, but when it says that he will establish and uphold his kingdom, a lot of times when we think of those words establish and uphold, it's almost a passive idea. Uh, to, to uphold something, you, you put it on a foundation. You put blocks up around it. You build a structure and let it sit on it, and it's passive. This is a much more active idea. The word establish is... Uh, it, it, is it, means to determine or to direct or to firm up, to make firm. It's the idea of building the foundation on which something is going to sit. The word uphold here in other contexts is the word that carpenters used when they would get these huge timbers and they're going to lay these timbers horizontally to construct a giant wall how do you get those timbers to lay flat against each other when you don't have modern machinery? Well, you take axes and hues and scrapers and knives and you, you cut and trim arduously. You carve and carve and carve until you get a flat spot all across the length of that log. And then what do you have to do? You have to do it to the other to the side of the other one. You prepare it and prepare it and prepare it. And then when you lock those timbers down on top of each other and interlock them together, it creates this enormously strong structure. But it's all in the preparation of those logs to fit together. That's our word, that he's going to prepare it. He's going to fit it together. He's going to uphold and establish and give great attention to his kingdom. This king is aggressively reigning. And this king has been predicted. We're told here that his, he will sit on the throne of David. And this word, David, rings out like a cannon shot on the morning. David, where did that come from? Well, God had called his shot. You, if you like to write in your Bibles again, you need to look up 2 Samuel 7.13 or Psalm 89.4, where David wanted to establish a home for God. And God said, no, no, let me establish a house for you. And I will I will set up your line, and you will always have somebody ruling on your line, in your line, and from you, from the, from the line of David, the king will come, this child, 
who's the wonderful counselor, who's the mighty God, who's the everlasting Father. And he will be Davidic through and through. So here's this promised child, this promised child of great renown, this promised child who's going to make promises that seem too good to be true, this child upon whose shoulders all the government will sit, this child who's the mighty God, a heroic savior, a child who's timeless. He's the I am. He's the architect of time. Yet he's approachable. And he'll come from David. Now, friends, this is why it's so important that when we come to the New Testament and we start asking, who's that child going to be? We read verses like this, chapter 2 of Luke, verse 11, that Jesus was born, where? In the city of David. He's born in David's city because he's David's son. He's going to sit on David's throne, so he'd better be born in David's city. Did you know that God put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus to take a census of the entire world? Joseph wasn't such a biblical scholar that he knew that he had to get married to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in the city of David. He was pushed there by government involvement. And there he is, in the city of David. Jesus was born to a daughter of David. If you like reading biblical genealogies, you can go to Luke chapter 3, verse 31. The genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is Mary's line. And you can trace Jesus' lineage from himself and Mary clearly and easily back to David. Jesus, his dad, his earthly dad anyway, his adopted father, was Joseph, who if you want to read about in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, that Jesus was born to a son of David. Now, hold your finger in Isaiah, okay? Turn over with me to Matthew really quickly. In your pew Bible, I believe it's page 807. Okay, Before you get there, let's remember something, okay? The Jewish people are waiting for a child who is called the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be a son of David. He will reign in the line of David. That's who you're waiting for. That's who you've identified as your Redeemer. That's who you've identified as your future Savior. And what do we read in the first verse of the first book of the New Testament. It says right here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Don't you think it was important to those New Testament Christians that Jesus was the son of David? Literally, the first word in our New Testament canon, the son of David. This person came to rule. He came to reign. My friends, here is why when Jesus came to the earth, Herod 
the Sanhedrin and these leaders. Here's why they were so threatened by Jesus. And that's because he possessed all the rights of kingship. They knew he was this person and they felt threatened by him. And so they attempted to eliminate him before he began his ministry. Jesus came to rule as a king. He came to put the government on his shoulders. He came to rule your life and he came to save you. Now, in conclusion, I want you to turn to one more passage with me, okay? For the sake of the sound guy, we're going to call an audible on the other applications, and we're just going to do this one, okay? So don't worry about anything moving forward here. Isaiah talks several times about this son. Okay, we've been reading about a child, right? If you go back to chapter 7, we're told that a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel. Here, we're told that this child will be called the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. I keep getting the titles out of order, but you know what I mean. Isaiah talks about this son again in multiple places, but let's turn to the place where he talks about him in his role as Savior. Go with me to Isaiah 53, okay? Isaiah 53. This son who will rule, this son who will deliver, this son who will make promises. It's talked about again. He's, this son is talked about again in Isaiah. And Isaiah 53, it's page 613 of your pew Bible. It says this, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up. Okay, we're talking about a kid again, this child. He didn't stay a child. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him or no beauty that we should des uh, desire him. In other words, this child is going to be as normal as can be if you were to look at him. But there's something abnormal about him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. The Prince of Peace is a man of sorrows. The everlasting God is a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. When I was a child, I have a cousin who had gotten in a backyard fight with the local bully, and he came inside, and he was bloodied. When I looked at his face, I ran from him. It's terrifying to look at. We're told that men will run from this child because he will be severely beaten. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We thought he was smitten of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. The Prince of Peace will bring us peace by bearing the punishment of our sins. And with his wounds we are healed, all we like sheep 
have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This child will grow up into a man and will bring peace by absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved. And once propitiated, once satisfied, once the wrath of God is paid, Jesus, the great king, now parcels out salvation and deliverance and redemption from anybody who will ask for it. And that sounds too wonderful to be true, doesn't it? But he's the wonderful counselor. The mighty God who will do it. He took your punishment. He bore your sorrows. He wants to be your savior. And he'll save you if you ask him to. Let's bow for prayer. If you've come to our service this morning and you're saying to yourself, I, I want that salvation. I want that to be mine. It's a very simple thing to do. You talk to the Lord, and you can do that sitting in your seat, talking to God in your heart. And you say, God, I'm sorry. I can't pay for my own sins, but Jesus did. That sounds almost too good to be true, but I believe it. And I want it to be mine. And frankly, you don't even need to say those words. If you already believe that, it's yours. But make it yours. Tell the Lord you want to make it yours. And if that's the cry of your heart, this person who was once a child will happily graft you into his kingdom and make you his and save you forevermore to his glory. Father, would you give us grace to call upon you? If any in here have not asked the Prince of Peace to save them from their sins, I ask that they would, without delay. And I pray your shalom, your peace, your blessing on those who know you, on those who are here rejoicing in their hearts that you've given us such a marvelous Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. Bless us now, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.